0: There has already been such a huge amount of progress that I could not have been vegan 10 years ago. And I still thought it was pretty extreme to be vegan five years ago. And now I find it very normal.
1: Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro. And if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 74 of the Business for Good podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the last episode with Katrina Spade of Recompose. I thought it was a riveting conversation about a better way to be dead than the conventional methods of handling your corpse. So if you missed it, go back and check out episode number 73. But don't do that until you've already enjoyed this episode, because I promise you, friend, it is a particularly enjoyable one. It is not every day that hard nosed financial journalists write about our ethical obligations to animals, let alone an entire book on the topic. Yet, that is exactly what Financial Times journalist Henry Mance has done. In Henry's new book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, Henry takes his readers on a wild ride through our relationship with animals, including getting a job working at a slaughter plant himself. Henry repeatedly weaves personal experiences like this one at the slaughterhouse into his narrative while also making prescriptions for a bold reshaping our parts of our economy that currently involve animal exploitation. In this episode, we will chat about everything from whether moral persuasion can work without technological advances for animals, what can be done to reduce demand for animal-based meat, what the financial implications of Henry's prescriptions would be, and more. I really liked Henry's book and I encourage you to pick it up and I enjoyed the conversation even more. I hope that you will too. And if you do, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for Business for Good podcast on Apple iTunes. That will help more people get exposed to the show and hopefully be inspired to do some good in the world for themselves too. I now bring you Financial Times journalist and author, Henry Mance. Henry, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Paul, thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure to be talking with you. I feel like I've been talking with you because I've been reading your book, which I really enjoyed. And, you know, when you read a book, you kind of feel like you're in a conversation with the author. But I know that you don't feel like you've been in a conversation with me. So I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to chatting with you about it. And I just want to ask you, you know, like, you work for the Financial Times. Most people, I presume, would expect that if you're going to write a book, it's going to be like some hard-nosed economics book. But instead, you wrote about the ethics of our treatment of animals. Why? Why?
0: Look, there is a funny link there, which is when I started out at the Financial Times and I was a young journalist, the newspaper had divided the world up into beats that had been given to to more senior reporters. And I was looking for something I could write a magazine piece on. And I suddenly realized that no one was writing about pets. And that I'd sat next to a vet at a wedding who'd said, being a vet is quite depressing these days because a lot of pets are just living so long. And so I sort of did digging around and um, I wrote about sort of the increase in pet longevity. This is a decade ago briefly found Britain's oldest dog, or what seemed to be Britain's oldest dog. Unfortunately, she died before we could um, get a photo of her for the the, the, uh, piece. How
1: ironic. ironic.
0: So that was a kind of a way in. But then this sector has been exploding in interest. And I really think like social media is a big part of it, that it just allows people to put their own interest in animals and their own love for animals at the forefront of the agenda really. And it's forced newspapers like the Financial Times to respond to that. Because we see on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook that people care about their pets, they care about wild animals, they find them cute and amazing. And so then that's something that we want to to have in our magazines and our and our newspapers. So that's how I I started writing about it and I've continued to write about food. And of course, you know, the hard-nosed reality of the food industry and climate change means that it's an issue for other, other reasons. But yeah, the contradiction is not as big as you would think.
1: Okay, well, I can't let it hang out there without you actually satiating this statistic. So what is the oldest dog in Britain? How old?
0: I think Blackie was, I want to say 24 at the wow. time. Um, <laughs> wow. But we never could make her part of that story. But it was interesting. And actually the data, I remember at one stage trying to, trying to speak to Buckingham Palace about whether they had good data on how old the corgis were living. Because I thought if anyone really kept the records, it would be them. They were not keen to collaborate on the piece. Last year, you'll know this, Americans spent $100 billion for the first time on, on pets, it's estimated, on their pets. And I think it's, it's incredible the transformation that's gone on in people's willingness to pay, you know, not just take out their their dog and shoot them brutally in the backyard because they've become a bit of a financial liability. And I think for me, that's the springboard for everything. Once you get that people are willing to pay for those sentient lives, then you can think about what they're willing to pay for conservation and for a different food industry etc.
1: I actually think that of that 100 billion dollars spent on pets that my wife and I are like a non-diminimus fraction of that. I don't know. We we're like holding this industry afloat with our dog Eddie I think but okay. but yeah no I like that it's goes from shooting animals in the backyard because they're an economic burden to now essentially buying them holiday gifts and letting them sleep in our beds. It's a pretty dramatic transformation in a very short amount of time and the same thing you see even in countries with expanding middle classes like in china where pet keeping is on the rise and that is certainly very good for dogs obviously for obvious reasons but it does mean that there's a lot more farm animals needed since nearly nobody is feeding their dogs plant based diet so like there is this irony that the increase in pet keeping and increase in pet longevity actually generally not always but generally does seem to have a negative impact on the welfare of let's say chickens and fish and so on.
0: Right, and I think that's why it has to be the start of the conversation not the end of it. You have to say right, I've got this other animal in my house in my home. I love them hugely. So now I need to extend that compassion to to other animals. I and mean, today I was looking at a photo um, of a blessing of the animals in a church of in England that someone sent me. And, you know, it's this incredible thing of a a basset hound queuing up for a blessing by the priest and there were a couple of horses behind it. I remember speaking to a priest in San Francisco about this and the priest saying, look, we've just got to extend this love that we have for the animals who belong to us in in some sense to other animals. And I think the reason I say, the reason the book is called, you know, How to Love Animals is because people define themselves as animal lovers. They say, I love animals almost as like a verbal tick and I've seen Tucker Carlson say it on Fox. I've seen other people say it. And you can't allow yourself to be defined as someone who, who is indifferent to animals or willing to, to allow cruelty to animals because that would just, in the modern world, that would just seem evil. And so nobody wants to be on the wrong side of this question, but it's where we go with it. What does it mean to be an animal lover? How deep are our responsibilities? Obviously, we don't have to you know, buy the prosthetics and provide the end-of-life care that we do for our pets for every animal. But we can do so much better than we're currently doing. And indeed, I think consumers want that and voters want that. There are votes in being animal friendly. As a, you know, We have a centre-right government in Britain, led by Boris Johnson, and they are pretty pro-animal. They're looking for ways in which they can dress themselves in the rhetoric of animal welfare and conservation. So it's across the spectrum, I think.
1: One of the lines in the book that I really appreciated was uh, when you said, and, and I'm quoting you here, you said, if this is what happens on a planet of animal lovers, I wouldn't like to see a planet of animal haters. <laughs> and there's a, a massive disparity, of course, between self profession of animal loving and the reality of, of what humanity is doing to animals. But you point out, like in some cases, though, like there's way more people out there who pay to watch birds than who pay to go hunting, right? So, like bird watchers are a much, much bigger category of people and they're spending money too on all the birdwatching things that they buy than people who want to go out and, and kill wildlife. And so I've wondered, is it everybody who is just living with this contradiction, or is it like a smaller portion of humanity that is doing these types of things that you're concerned about? But let's get into that. Henry, I want to chat about, just like before we start talking about some of the financial implications of your prescriptions in the book, I just want to talk about like what your prescriptions actually are. Because You're basically arguing that humans ought to be owning fewer animals and having more free living animals. That's like the bottom line of your book, that you want more wildlife and and less owned animals. So what do you mean by that and why?
0: So I think livestock farming at the moment is a disaster. Really, I think it's a disaster for the animals which are being pushed beyond their biological limits, whose sort of emotional lives and social needs are not respected in many of the farm systems we've built and possibly all of the farm systems we've built. So, I think we need to really turn around. We're still at a global level. The amount of meat and dairy being consumed is, is going up fairly rapidly. And we, so, we need to turn that around. And uh, starting with rich countries where consumption is high, we need to really start bringing that down. And you can, you can start putting figures on that. We've had a report for the government here recently in Britain, which has spoken about cutting the amount of meat we eat uh, by 30% by 2030. I mean, that's nine years away. And you're talking about that would be the equivalent of going from four percent of the population being vegetarian to over over one in three. So it, so it would be a really yeah. massive tr- change.
1: In fairness, though, so Henry, like that would be if you had a certain portion of the population that never ate meat, but you could envision zero percent added vegetarians and still get a thirty percent reduction. Exactly. Like That's not how meat. it's
0: going to happen. Like just to sort of face up to the scale of the task. I mean, one of the, I guess one of my frustrations is that. Everybody has accepted the rhetorical level that we should eat less meat, eat better meat, people say. And yet I don't think people, it's really sunk in quite what we mean when we say by less meat, even on carbon storage grounds, for example, even if you're just interested in hitting the climate change goals that governments like the UK have, you really need quite a significant cut. So that 30% is really governed by the net zero commitment that the UK has. And so a 30% cut is a really significant cut. It's not just giving up meat wonder, uh, or ordering the vegetarian option. Once a week, out of your twenty-one meals a week, it's it's really thinking very differently about how schools, restaurants, prisons, hospitals provide food. So I think, however you want to think about that commitment, it is more substantial than than just making a few changes to your diet. I think food is at the heart of everything because if we farm differently, if we change what we eat, then we just liberate this huge area of farmland. So you'll know the figures around just how much more efficient plant-based food is at the UK level, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of hectares that could be freed up within a decade for woodlands, peatlands, grasslands, all of which will promote animal life, which has been neglected for decades, if not centuries. And so I think that is a huge opportunity there. But I also, I, you know, I want to make some points in the and I make some points in the book around zoos, for example. And I think I'm someone who grew up with zoos, who loved going to the zoos, we had pandas and elephants in, in London Zoo near where I grew up. And London Zoo is in some ways the first modern zoo created just under 200 years ago and we were taught that that was normal and that was healthy and that was a good place for the animals you know zoos were not created to be good places for conservation or in, in the most part certainly London Zoo wasn't they, they weren't cons- uh, created with ideas of animal welfare and what an animal's natural behaviors might be and whether they would be happy with this small amount of space and this climate etc and the noise around it and the visitors and all those things and I think zoo's are not a big part of what's wrong with our relationship with animals. But I think that they can just remind us that we had this fantasy that we could keep animals in very small spaces, whether it be on farms or in zoos, or even in our homes, with the case of some undomesticated animals that people used to keep as pets. And we just have to step back and say, no, these are sentient animals. They have their own patterns of life. And in most cases, they don't fit into the spaces that we would like to them them to be for our sheer convenience. So let's find beauty not in owning animals and not in putting them in in city centers where we can go and see elephants, but in just having them out in the wild. And I think, you know, I now uh, find in looking at wild frogs or birds, the beauty that I once found going to see elephants in a zoo. We don't have to take animals out of context and out of what would be happy social lives for us to enjoy them.
1: Well, I'm in concert with you on that prescription. I guess my question is, like, if you think about the economic changes that will have to happen in order to switch to a fossil fuel free future, it requires like a pretty dramatic reshaping of the economy, get us onto renewables in the timeframe that climate experts assert we need to do it. What do you think is a bigger reshaping of the economy going toward a future that is based on renewable energy or the prescriptions that you're making in this book that would reshape our relationship with animals in a pretty dramatic way? It's a good question. And I think
0: I see them as broadly compatible. I think 89% of the time, what's good for nature is is also good for, for climate. And I think less livestock farming is at the heart of that. I think there are certain cultural things around meat, which has obviously meant that getting people to give up meat over centuries has been a very hard ask and it feels like such a personal thing and obviously there may be there are questions of what we've evolved to taste and to find delicious and how we're brought up and and all that i think that so meat i think is particularly tough but i also you know i think there is a at the heart of our model of human progress there's a sort of desire for more and i think you could sum it up in the rise of suvs why not have a slightly bigger car why not sort of take up this much more of the road and i think Having an ethic of restraint, which just guides how we treat other animals so we don't try and breed dogs into ridiculous shapes because we find them cute. We respect the health of pet dogs, but we also do not try and leave a huge footprint on the natural world by just expanding relentlessly into forests, etc. I think that ethic of restraint is hard for us to adopt. I think that really guides us, I think, both when we confront climate change and when we confront nature. But I have to say, I want to be optimistic on one point, which is coronavirus was a moment where people were presented with the evidence. They were presented with very clear guidance from politicians and scientists that, you know, real restraint was needed and they adopted it. And I think there is a model there that taxes on meat are very unpopular. Taxes on fuel are pretty unpopular. But if you say to people, look, in the interests of our society and in the interests of nature, we're going to have to step back and put some limits on, then actually that's that's something that comes across to people as much fairer. And there was a poll recently where people were not prepared to accept certain climate change policies in the UK, this is, if they had a personal cost. But they were prepared to accept by, I think, a margin of 46 to 31, they were prepared to accept limits on how much meat they could eat. And they were also by a different margin, a wider margin, prepared to to accept limits on how many flights they could take. And that, for me, says that a just transition is not necessarily arrived at through taxes, which I think people resent for many reasons, but through social limits, a sense that we're all in it together. And if we can foster that with relations, with regards to me and with regards to climate change, then I think we may have a better chance of success.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I would have intuitively thought that taxes would be more palatable than just outright bans or restrictions. If you think about like cigarette taxes in the United States, for example, they have dramatically increased the price of a pack of cigarettes. But I do think they are less objectionable than just telling you you can't have more than X number of cigarettes per week. But you know, I'm interested in, in seeing the polling that you're referring to. And you know, my own view is that human beings are really wonderful at so many things. Restraining ourselves is not one of them. <laughs> I, I just don't think that we're good at it. I think that people, right now at least, are showing that. They'll eat as much meat as they can get. Countries like China and India and Brazil and Mexico, as you point out in the book, like meat consumption is skyrocketing. You point out soberingly, but truthfully, that since Peter Singer's Animal Liberation came out in 1975, I think you wrote that meat demand has tripled since then. And it seems to me like people basically eat as much meat as they can get their hands on as they can afford essentially so as you have like swelling middle classes in the countries that i just mentioned people one of the very first things they do when they start getting a little bit more money in their pocket is eating more meat and it's great for them that they're coming out of poverty of course that's what we want but there is this uh, negative externality of increasing the problems associated with raising and slaughtering billions and billions of animals for food and so I've wondered, and I'm interested in your opinion on this. Like, how much of the transition do you think is going to be by what you're saying? Like, hey, let's just restrain ourselves, and maybe you have rules on how much meat you can eat, versus coming up with new technologies that say, okay, well, you want that meat experience? You talk about queen meat in the book as an example. If we can, if that were actually a commercial reality right now, and that were economically viable, people could eat all the meat they wanted, essentially, without causing so many problems. So. Why not just do that like why tell people hey turn your lights off more rather than just inventing a new light bulb that doesn't take up much energy at all
0: It's a great question but they're much more compatible than people think I mean like who found it impossible food a vegan it's, it's sort of you have that restraint and then it gets poured into a business that creates a product that brings more people on board so I don't see it as an either or I'm trying to do with this book is to move the dial slightly from maybe two or three or four 5% of the population feeling very strongly about these issues, strongly enough to opt out of eating meat and dairy. And if we can get that to 10 or 20%, then I think it's there's much more leverage to, to go to a school and say, look, can we make meat opt-in or can we reduce it from the legal limit? Meat has to be served a certain amount of times in the UK. Can we reduce, opt out of that, or can we change to that rule? The cigarette moves that you talk about are interesting for me because the really, the punitive measures on smoking, you know, the really heavy taxes, the banning on smoking in public places, in bars, that really only happened once most people had opted out of smoking. And you know, smoking was never as popular as meat eating. But at the moment, we're at a stage where nearly everybody takes part in meat eating and they don't necessarily want to be pushed to the sidelines. And so we have to find other ways of doing that. I believe that behavior change is a part of the, getting the ball rolling, is how I would put it. It sort of provides a test bed for products like Oatly and Impossible Burger, etc. And also provides the motivation of people behind those products. I think also there'll be people who don't want to eat those kind of substitutes and who want to eat a different kind of food. And they will benefit from opting out because for a variety of reasons and not just because they found a perfect substitute for it.
1: It's funny because... I work in the alternative meat space because I believe so strongly that this is what's needed to like satisfy the meat tooth of people, so to speak, without having to raise and slaughter animals. But personally, I'm quite happy to eat bean and rice burritos and lentil soup and hummus and other foods that don't taste like meat at all. And I wonder how much room there is for that. Like, do people? How many people need that meat experience versus would they be happy to eat other foods that taste good but maybe uh, don't taste like meat? And um, I think that's yet to be determined. Like there's doesn't seem to be any like major food category that is in the plant-based space that poses a real threat to meat that isn't uh, like meat alternatives, but I'll be eager to see it if that happens. But just going back to a point that you just made, Henry, is that you're saying that, well, people could get behind or at least not oppose the cigarette taxes once nearly everybody wasn't smoking. And you know, you make this point in your book, you say like, we stopped whaling and then people started caring about whales after we stopped whaling, right? Like you're making the argument that basically it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. And you're hoping that the same will be so for fish that when we're less reliant on the exploitation of fish, that maybe people will think of fish in a different way than we currently think about them, which is like basically mindless plants floating around in the water. So you're arguing that basically we need to reduce our reliance on the exploitation before people start caring about the animals. Is that, is that an accurate assessment?
0: I mean, I think if I have a criticism of animal activists, it's that they've focused really on cases which don't affect the majority of animals or which are sort of easily othered. So you think about a dog meat festival in China, which on sort of online and in criticism over the past few years, and people like Ricky Gervais, the comedian going against it very strongly, and likewise trophy hunting. And you know, firstly, I think with trophy hunting, there's a there is a, a misunderstanding of of its role in preserving wild spaces in Africa. But I also think it's very easy to say the problem is over there, the problem is with, with those people in China, rather than saying, look, if we find it really inhumane to eat a, a dog, well, why are we happy to eat pigs here or keep them in uh, crates or to breed chickens to grow so fast that they're dead within six weeks and can barely stand up for for some of that time? So. I've been trying in the book to question our own practices that really the ones that are adopted by 80% of the or 90% of the people here, rather than to say, look, these things which don't really matter to us and which we don't take part in, they're awful. And I think that's too easy. It's too e- easy to get out clause. I think the easiest things to ban are the things that people don't do and the easiest things to campaign against. So I understand why people go against the dog meat festival. And of course, it will be easier to move against the meat industry when more people have opted out of it. That's not entirely an option. Just to go back quickly to your earlier question, like there has already been such a huge amount of progress that I could not have been vegan 10 years ago. And I still thought it was pretty extreme to be vegan five years ago. And now I find it very normal and easy. And in places like London, I asked at a cafe the other day where they had oat milk and the guy looked at me like I was a complete moron. He was like, well, of course we've got oat milk. It's London. It's 2021. You know, like, this is completely normal. So the story is about, like, soy milk being a powder and you having to mix it up yourself. and
1: <laughs> I did that.
0: I have so much respect for you. And, you know, like, presumably you rate at restaurants which treated you terribly. And that's just not the case anymore And in
1: London, at least. People look at me like, like I'm a moron for a lot of reasons, not necessarily <laughs> right. not necessarily oat milk related. But I mean, I became vegan in 1993. I remember there was, um, there was like Eden soy, soy milk back then. But you know, for the most part, I mean, I, I was actually mixing a powder. I remember that very well, actually. And I did it. Eden soy was available, so I could have purchased it. It had two ingredients, soybeans and water. So you know, <laughs> it wasn't exactly like an advanced product. But I remember thinking at the time, well, it's cool. I'm not using like a lot of packaging, I guess, when you're buying the powder. But anyway, I mean, I agree with you, Henry. I do think there's been a lot of progress made, I think, on the, the bottom line things that matter the most, though, like it is worse today for animals than it was uh, when I became vegan in 93. And it was worse for animals today than it was five or 10 years ago. And so while I do think there's promising signs that are happening, bottom line is that it's much harder to be a wild animal because of what we're doing to the climate and taking away habitat today at a very rapid rate. The lives of farm animals, while in some cases are somewhat better, the number of them being utilized is just grows every year. And so chickens and fish, especially who represent the lion's share or maybe like the chickens and fish share of the animals who are raising their wives, for the most part, for chickens raised for meat and fish who were eating, like their wives just really are, are quite horrible. So like for me, I guess what I would want to know from you is you're saying, well, when we started caring about whales after we stopped whaling, you are saying that's not necessarily a possibility with meat since nearly everybody eats meat. But I guess the question is, can technology reduce our reliance on these animals so that we can then start thinking about them differently? You know, as an example, we all know why we stopped whaling. We stopped whaling because kerosene was invented and it was a cleaner, more efficient way to light our homes than whale oil was. Similarly, the animal welfare movement was really founded both in Britain and the US for horses who were being abused in the streets and what ended up Liberating horses wasn't humane sentiment. It was the invention of cars. We used to live pluck geese for their quills all the time. It was a very inhumane practice. We stopped doing that not because we cared about geese, but because metal fountain pens were invented. And since then, we've come to look at all these animals differently. You know, we look at whales so differently that we pay to go look at them now. You know, we used to have boats that shot, that went out to hunt them. Now we have boats that people pay to get on way to look at them. We think of geese in a pretty romantic way now. Horses are basically viewed as companion animals by most people as opposed to labor animals. And so I'm wondering, like, why not the same? Why not the same thing for fish and for chickens and pigs and so on?
0: I agree. This is a huge part of the solution. I'm totally with you. And I, I think it's just going to require, given that we're trying to turn things around in, in really quite a short number of years, we're talking a much shorter time than it, it took us to move against whaling, for example. Then I think we should use every weapon at our disposal. And I think having people who are willing to to ethically say now, I just can't justify eating meat and dairy because of the impact on the climate, the amount of land it's using up, and because of the um, way in which animals are treated on farms. I think that's just going to accelerate the process hugely. And we need the farming sector to be carbon negative, really, to offset the emissions in other sectors. So we need to do it a lot in a small amount of years. I just think if you have people who are vegan, people who are really committed, or mostly vegan, who are in companies, who are in supermarkets, who are on school boards, who are in government, they're going to get things done and really push that process. And so I think having a personal commitment, for me, can really lie at the heart of political action
1: and corporate action on these issues for sure I, i'm I'm not against it by any means. I'm all for it man Like i, I mean i
0: well, you're a perfect example of it. you are a living breathing example of that
1: yeah i mean I, I I would love for more people to see the world the way that I do as somebody who wants to do the most for animals, I figure like we got to play the cards that are dealt and try to do what I think is going to be like the most effective, most efficient way to help them, even if that doesn't mean waging a moral persuasion campaign right now, but rather instead telling people you can enjoy. Um, these same tastes and experiences that you like without the downside. I live in California, and there was a case here about a month ago where a group of cows fled a slaughterhouse. They escaped, and they walked around residential neighborhoods for the day. And it was a big news story. This group of refugees from the slaughterhouse were walking around residential like Southern California neighborhoods. And as you can imagine, every single person is rooting for the cows. like All these people pleading for the cows to be sent to sanctuary, people were rooting for the cows, they're cheering them on in the streets as they're walking through, people are so happy that these cows escaped. Yet, of course, nearly everybody cheering for the cows is eating meat as well. And to me, that underscores that people want meat, they don't necessarily want slaughter. They want that experience, like in the same way that, you know, you flick a light switch on, like what you want is the experience of an illuminated room, but you're not thinking about whether it's coming from renewables or from fossil fuels, you just want light. I think most people just want meat. They don't really care if animals are slaughtered for it. In fact, they probably would prefer that animals not be slaughtered for it. And if we can deliver them that experience without having to raise and slaughter animals, it seems like maybe the most promising thing in my view for what could happen. So let me just pivot from that then and ask one, whether you agree, but then two, like what do you think in Henry Mance's world right now, 2021, what are the most promising things for the prospects of animals that you see? Is it technology? Is it behavior change? Like, What are the things that you think are the most promising going on for animals right now?
0: I absolutely think that the step change in alternatives to meat is the most exciting thing. I'm someone who would easily say that an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Burger is as good as a, as a beef burger. And I argue with this people, not everyone agrees, but I basically, I think it's the case. I'm really excited to see what happens with clean meat. And I really hope that goes on sale at a decent price as soon as possible. What we need to get to it, nobody's talking about in the foreseeable future banning meat. But if we can get to a stage where three out of the five options on a restaurant menu are plant-based or involve clean meat, then that is really going to be a very promising situation. So yeah, I'm excited by... Clean meat, by meat alternatives, by milks. I think the amount of money going into milks, alternative milks, just suggests to me that there's going to be something for everyone. Like almond milk, it's not for me. Oat milk has been brilliant. But again, and I was speaking to someone yesterday who's full-on carnivore, who was saying they just prefer oat milk in their coffee. So I think that's brilliant. That wouldn't have been the case five years ago. I really look forward to more investment in that area. What I haven't quite seen yet at least on this side of the Atlantic, is the cheeses. I think I would love hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of investment to go into alternatives to dairy cheese because that is a hang-up for so many people. And I think ultimately I'm excited that there can be a political process and also a process within supermarkets which is now looking for constructive ways to reduce meat consumption. Like, I think it's become recognized that our food choices are not really free choices in so many. You know, that's why we, we eat junk. Because of the way it's marketed, because there's obviously in ultra processed foods, there are just things we can't get enough of, like salt and sugar, and we find very difficult to resist. And so I think organizations are now feeling slightly empowered to shape those choices in a healthy direction. So, governments thinking about how does it provide healthy food to people? Well, look, if there's a problem about, you know, people need to eat, they don't need to eat more protein. People really, what they need to eat is more fiber, more vegetables. We need to get make those available for people, and I'm excited that the government is recognising its role here in supplying vegetables to people. We'll see how how exactly that shakes out, but it could be just three boxes of it being delivered. And I'm also excited that supermarkets just because they're now having to declare their emissions, they're now thinking about look how is our product offering affecting the you know our carbon footprint, and how can we squeeze it down? How can we promote more? plant-based products within our stores and get them selling
1: all of that i i think is wonderful and i am in total concert with you on it i do wonder i think it'd be like a really interesting experiment if giving people free vegetables led them to eat less meat or not my own experience giving homeless people vegetarian food not a small portion of the time it's rejected sadly and i just think that people want meat so much that if they could get free vegetables or pay for meat. I think a lot of people would still pay for meat, but I don't know. I mean, it'd be an interesting experiment to run, but I agree with you on fiber. I'm constantly shocked. Like every food product, it tells you how many grams of protein there are, there is like on the front cover, like, Oh, you know, 10 grams of protein, neither you nor nobody you've ever met is protein deficient. Like you've never met a protein deficient person ever yet. Probably you and every person, you know, is fiber deficient. And so like at least in America, more than 90% of people are fiber deficient. And the RDA, the recommended daily allowance of fiber in America is still pretty low also. Like it should be probably higher, but even by the pretty portion that we're told that we need, still most people aren't meeting that. And so I hope in the future, people will not be asking, where do you get your protein? But rather they'll be asking, where do you get your fiber? That would be good. That would be good. That's an interesting look at what is going on right now that might actually be good Interestingly, on the cheese part that you mentioned, Henry, like it's fascinating because in the US at least, fluid cow's milk consumption has been going down. However, the number of dairy cows hasn't really been going down. And that's because cheese consumption is going up. And it takes about 10 pounds of milk to make one pound of cheese. So even though you see a big dent being made in the fluid milk market, it hasn't actually translated into really fewer dairy cows in existence just because cheese is going up so much. So in other words, if you really want to reduce the number of dairy cows in existence, doing alternative cheese will probably go a lot longer, a lot further than doing alternative milk. Uh, the total number of dairy cows is pretty small compared to the t- number of chickens and fish, for example. But it's still, if that's your goal, it se- does seem like cheese may be um, like a bigger ethical bang for the buck, so to speak.
0: It's a very hard one to, for people to get their head around the fact that dairy cows may have worse lives than beef cows. Some are, you know. Beef cows can live pretty decent lives in some cases, and dairy cows, you know, just because of the the rhythm of impregnation and separation from their calves, often at birth or within 24 hours, and then often kept inside on hard floors, because that's the most efficient way of being able to milk them regularly. I think because people look at the cheese on their plate and think, this doesn't look bloody, this looks humane, that even vegetarians eat a whole lot of cheese. So I, I think people reading my book, they found that the most powerful thing in many cases, but they also find it the hardest thing to give up the dairy. So I would love more and more tech in that area.
1: Yeah, it does seem like you do hear people all the time saying, ah, you know, I can totally do it, but did never given up cheese, which is interesting because it actually portends some pretty good things because cheese is like a pretty novel culinary experience for humanity. Like it was only in the last couple thousand years or so that we learned how to make milk curdle. And before that, nobody had ever dreamt of Gouda or Brie or cheddar or whatever, like that. those are all kind of novel culinary experiences on the broad map of humanity's existence. And so then the question is, like, what other new technologies will create entirely new categories of food that people will similarly love and will have these new experiences that people will say, I can never give it up? And hopefully, this will be animal free. And my hope is that the food technologies that we've been talking about will actually create not just mimicry of, of meat and other animal products but we'll create new categories of food that are just so good that people just can't live without them in the same way they declare about cheese right now.
0: That's exciting. I mean, I'm really keen that the message is not one of doom and gloom. It's of like, we can have a better world with when I think about climate as well, I think of just more green spaces, cleaner air, getting out there and enjoying the the natural world and eating great flavors. I mean, like, I don't think anyone thinks our diet is brilliant at the moment. You know, you can eat lots of cheap chicken and just you know, feel mm-hmm. bad about yourself the next day. And so I'm hopefully looking forward to a world where people eat more vegetables, interesting taste, seasonal food that doesn't taste like cardboard. That's an exciting thing for people to aim for, rather than feeling like, oh, we're being pushed into this funnel which we you know don't enjoy and we we you know, we'll have to do this but we'll drag our feet as much as possible. No, like it's a better future. If in my neighborhood there were fewer cars and some of that space on, on roads were given up to other things and benches and you know, trees, et cetera, we would enjoy living here more. And I really feel if like if more people got vegetable boxes, if more people were taught about vegetarian food, vegan food, they would enjoy it. And when people come around for dinner, they always say that they, they enjoy the food. And it's just that lack of knowledge and that break with tradition that means that it's not quite as inbuilt. But I think we need to sell a positive vision. And we need to, you know, that's certainly what the most successful companies in this space do. It's certainly how you keep your head above water when you're otherwise confronted with slightly miserable statistics around the number of factory farm animals, the carbon emissions, et cetera.
1: Yes. Well, speaking of a positive vision, Henry, what would you recommend to folks then? You are a smart guy. You wrote a really interesting book. You work for you know, one of the most prestigious financial newspapers in the world. Like, do you have recommendations for things that you wish that people would either read or listen to or experience that you think would be useful for this or any other topic?
0: At the back of my book, I have a list of sort of works that, that I recommend, but a couple that aren't in there, but that I've enjoyed books, short, readable things. One is a book called Losing Eden by Lucy Jones. It's just about our connection and how much we derive from the natural world. And also about starting with kids. It was something we haven't mentioned is that my book is really aimed at my daughters. And it's about kind of the experience of becoming a parent and then thinking, what life do I want my kids to leave? What ethics do I want them to have? Can I sort of find a way for them to live with these animals that they're surrounded by in the form of storybooks and comics and teddies? Can I find a way that they can live with those animals into their adult life? So Lucy Jones's *Losing Eden* is really good on this subject of just becoming connected to the natural world. And there's a new book which is on themes that you've written about, Paul, brilliantly. And but it's a fun one called uh, *A Brief History of Motion* by Tom Standage, who's a editor at the Economist, and it's about sort of how we went from the chariot to horse-drawn carriages to the automobile and what comes next. And I think it's a really good one for people to, to think about you know, how technologies come of age and how we sometimes take wrong paths. And he's firmly of the view that the car age is, is coming to an end and that something else will replace it. And that will be a sort of hybrid of you know, scooter hire, um, walking, um, ride hailing, some electric vehicles, probably not autonomous vehicles in a very big way, etc. But it just gets you thinking about change and possibility and what technologists can offer, but also what regulators have to do. Because in so many instances, when it comes to transport, regulation has been perverted by lobbying. And that's given as a, a bad urban environment. It's given as us inefficient use of fossil fuels, etc. So we should try and undo some of those mistakes. But I found those two really powerful books.
1: All right, cool. Well, we'll certainly include that in the show notes. Also, I'll tip my hat to you, Henry, for your first response saying, "If you want to know what you should read, you should get my book because in the back, I have <laughs> I have recommendations in there." So,
0: all I feel guilty about, Paul, is repeating myself for things that I've already written down. So it's, it it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a marketing. Uh...
1: <laughs> that's okay. Hey man, you gotta sell books somehow. You gotta sell books somehow. No, that's great, and I and I appreciated your list in the back of the book also, which I, I thought was good. And I actually, on the driving front, I'm eager to read that book. I hadn't heard of it. So thank you. I will definitely buy that. Surprising to me how little focus that there is placed by animal advocates on the institution of driving because cars are responsible for, in the United States, hundreds of millions of wildlife deaths alone, way more than hunters kill, way, way, way more than hunters kill. And then not only just the actual direct impact of running over animals, but also the roads that crisscross through their habitat and destroy their communities, basically. And it's like there's this view that, oh, like people who hunt are these like animal haters or whatever. Obviously you in the book point out why you don't believe that's true, but cars are a much bigger enemy of wildlife than hunters are, without even a close competition. So I hope that prediction comes out to be true that we are the age of cars is coming to an end for a lot of reasons. That's one of them. But let me then ask you finally, Henry. So you are literate in the financial space. You follow a lot of companies. You've named a number of the companies here. Are there any companies that you wish existed that don't? Is there anything that you wish a company would get formed to tackle this problem?
0: Not quite in those terms. But look, I think the stranded assets argument with me is slightly different to it is to with oil and gas. I mean, like one of the reasons why the livestock industry is is not great is because it uses so much land. And that land will still have a value, even if we stop eating meat. So it won't be stranded, a stranded asset, like a coal mine will be a stranded asset in 20 years time. I really think that there should be more emphasis on using that land in a trustworthy way. The whole offset market is a disaster, and could do with much better players within it. Look, I think we've got to stop flying around the world in so many ways. And so I'd love to see more domestic tourism in my country in Britain, and for that to be invested in using former farms, turn them into tourist spots and and rewild them. And I also think we just have to like stop our, reduce our use of raw materials. And I think any platform and network that is facilitating the reusing of goods, the purchase of secondhand goods, the selling of spare parts, need to be really encouraged. And I think that will come of age. You've seen some of that in the fashion space with people, you know, looking to sell on clothes and people looking to buy secondhand partly for ethical reasons. But I just think across the board, there is a lot of wealth tied up in people's homes in the form of gadgets that they don't use, other things they'd like to get rid of, and they just need some easier platforms to, to share and get rid of it. I think any investment in that space is welcome.
1: Well, that's great. We actually did an earlier episode with Goodwill, the massive chain here of secondhand goods stores and the good that it does. Like Basically, even if you're a vegan, I would argue that actually buying a used weather shoes from Goodwill probably does a lot less harm than buying new plastic like fake weather shoes. I'm a big believer in power of used. Well, let me outro us here, Henry, with a quote from your book that I really enjoyed where you concluded by saying that you hope for a future where humans recognize what they share with animals, where we put less effort into owning animals and more into accommodating them alongside of us. If you, Henry, could sum up your desired relationship with animals in one sentence, it would be deliberate domestication is a dead end. Wilderness is the path that takes us where we need to go. So I couldn't agree with you more. I recommend reading your book. It's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And I really appreciate all that you're doing to help give such a nuanced and insightful view of our relationship with animals as you do in the book, Henry. So thanks for everything you're doing.
0: Paul, I admire your work hugely and thank you so much for having me on been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.